Professor Ron, if you were to advise an actor who is slated to play a police officer mm -hmm. that will be entering a fresh crime scene, what are some essentials that actor should know? Some details that really people only in law enforcement or forensics would know about? Well, the first thing that, the first rule of a first responder, which is what we call the, the first officer on duty, is preservation of life. They have to go in and make sure if there's any bodies, are they alive? And if they are, the crime scene be damned, you have to preserve their, you do what you can to preserve their life. Get the EMTs in, get the paramedics, stuff like that. Um, unfortunately, it comes, sometimes comes at the at the uh, the detriment of the crime scene, of the pre the preservation of the crime scene. That said, once you've secured, the, once you've once you've taken care of that, then you can preserve the crime scene. And by that, I mean put up a perimeter, set up the yellow tape, make sure nobody comes in and out, make sure the press stays way way far away. Um, you don't you don't want to allow people in that don't belong there. And one of the rules that we have is kind of like Boy Scouts, pack it in, pack it out. You walk in and you walk, try is the best you can to walk at backwards the same way you came in. People don't understand that and don't get that because walking backwards in front of a camera is not a good thing. But that's what we actually do with a, with a first responder. Um, the second thing I have to say is study your role intently. Ian McKellen, who I met when I was just a kid, had told me that read your material in depth before you start anything. Because I had asked him about a Shakespearean play and he says, I never read the play, I just do the scene. But you need to read everything, you're, you're young. So to the neophyte or, the, or the, the young officer in training, I would say read books, read websites. You don't have time to read books. Read journal articles, read websites, uh, look, look things up. Expose yourself, if there's going to be dead bodies, expose yourself to pictures of dead bodies. There's plenty of websites out there that have things like that. Um, that's basically what I would say. In terms of, of an emotional response, uh, would most officers just keep their composure in terms of like, what if they see something involving children or just something that's very disturbing? Would most officers probably just, they'd still have to remain non-emotional? Yes. Okay. Yes. You have to keep your emotions in check would be a good way to, a good way to say it. Um, you have to maintain integrity of the scene and yourself at all times. Media has ways of finding out what's going on at a crime scene. They have microphones that can pick things up at three miles, you know, whatever. Um, they have their ways of finding that. I, I know of an incident that happened years ago where people were eating donuts and laughing, the command post, and they were setting things up and trying to get it going, and the media picked up on it, and they, that department got lambasted. Um, it's, that's not something that's appropriate. You have to stay with dignity and respect. One thing I always teach my students is when referring to a person that has passed away, they are decedents. They are not corpses. They are not dead guys. They are not bodies. Um, it, they are decedents. That is the best way to pay respect. Um, yeah. And is there a gender specific terminology or no? It's always decedent. And if it's we don't know who the person is, is it a Jane Doe or, or that's? Jane Doe, John Doe hmm. is very, very um, prevalent.
So Jane Doe 1, Jane Doe 2, Jane Doe 3. Sometimes uh, coroner's offices will label them Jane Doe and the date, things like that. So yes, um, there's we would still call gender, gender non-specific and call them decedents. But yes, we would uh, call them officially in a, in a report until they've been identified, of course. Sure. Um, then you would um, label them by their by their name, and generally you would say, you know, Mr. Roberts or whatever. For you don't leak names out into the press usually until something's been really adjudicated, which means it's gone through all the way through court um, and through trial. Sometimes you don't release information like that. You you preserve the integrity of of the the, the, the decedent. In terms of approaching the decedent, let's suppose the officer realizes, okay, we have someone that has passed away. Mm -hmm. How are they approaching the body? They have gloves on? I, yes, a hazmat would be involved. Um, you, you have to be very, very careful when approaching a, a decedent because you don't know if they have AIDS or if they have other communicable diseases, STDs, things like that. So wearing gloves, wearing proper hazmat materials. They have disposable materials from footies to, he to the head, to the, the, the head. Um, everything in between, and, and they're like $5. It's, it's no big deal, they're disposable. It is better to be protected because you never, in this day and age, you never know with hepatitis C um, and, and other communicable diseases like that that are highly contagious or, or highly sp easily spread. You have to protect yourself. So then let's suppose they were protected, they had gloves, maybe some uh, footies or whatever. Mm -hmm. How would they touch the, the decedent? Let's suppose they wanted to move him or maybe they wouldn't move him. What would happen? Would that only be the EMTs or the coroner's office that would move the decedent? Very good question. The coroner's office. actually. There is a coroner slash ME's office, which is a medical examiner. The coroner is the, sometimes, is many times the sheriff coroner. The Orange County uh, coroner is the, uh, is the Orange County sheriff uh, in, L, in, in um, south of Los Angeles. Um, but the medical examiner is the, the squad that takes care of examining the body. And they will be the ones that come in and move it and, I don't want to say it, move them. Um, and take care of the examination. Mm -hmm. And you are not allowed, you are allowed to protect and preserve, but you are not allowed to m remove or move. You can pat them down and look for a wallet for identification, stuff like that. Be very, very careful. They may have a needle in their pocket. And even if you're wearing gloves, no, sh doesn't matter. Needles are sharper than any glove you're wearing, unless you're wearing, you know, industrial strength. Um, but the ME is the one that they, they will yell at you if, if, if you've touched the body and moved it. Because, and, and as I teach in my courses, you can see if a body has been moved um, or has been moved. And it's very important. I mean, a five minute of rolling it over could change, the dif could be the difference between knowing that it was laying down or not, now not knowing if it was laying down or on its side or whatnot. And that can completely can change the outcome of the investigation. So when this officer is going to this crime scene, where are they checking for the pulse to see if they have a decedent, to see if it is a crime scene? Yeah, the, well, that's two things. The best thing is the, the wrist, of course, or the carotid artery, which I forget which side that's on. I, I don't do that part. Um, and then as to if it's a crime scene or not, always just, I don't want to say pretend, always assume that it's a crime scene until proven otherwise. 
That is the best uh, formula for, invest for an investigation. You can always, also another thing with the perimeter that I talked about with the yellow tape and all that, you can always push it out further because you can always pull back when you need to. So you may start off with having a perimeter that's five blocks wide because you don't know where the, the killer may still be in the neighborhood, um, assuming there's a killer, of course. Um, but the, as you find out, no, it's just located at the house, then you can pull things in. Or a lot of times, we're under a time constraint. If you're on a freeway, say a freeway shooting happened, you close down the freeway, people are gonna get ticked off. You don't want it closed any longer than you have to. You have to get in, get it done right, and get out. You have one chance. That's one of the most important rules of any scientific investigation, is you have one chance to, to preserve it, to document it, to collect it. And particularly when it comes to a, a, like a freeway, you cannot go back the next day, your, your crime scene has been compromised at that point. Same thing with um, a house, not too bad, you can lock down. You can say nobody can get in here, you know, it's preserved. In, in lighting terms, it's a hot set, um, things like that. You can, you, can, you can leave it as it is. Professor Ron, can we talk about someone approaching a crime scene and collecting fingerprint evidence? Who would that person be and how would they approach this evidence? The person that it would be is what we term a criminalist. They are the ones who are, they study criminalistics. They are the evidence collection team. Everything that is collected, not just fingerprints, but swabbing for blood, semen, saliva, um, perfumes, we can do scents too. Um, these are done by criminalists. Let me explain it qu uh, quickly, if I may. There's three types of forensic scientists, if you will. There is the front line, which are, are the criminalists. They go out and collect and preserve everything. Then there's the laboratory criminalist that does runs the assays and runs everything through the equipment, through the gas spectrometer and through microscopy, microscopes, all that stuff. That's the lab technician. The third level is the scholar practitioner that writes the algorithms, if you will, for, uh, you know, that, that the laboratory people would use to say Armstrong 2013 states that this is person is five foot six to five foot nine because dot, dot, dot. I myself am a forensic practitioner. Um, I do research and I teach and I hope to create uh, out of my research an algorithm one day. Um, but to answer your question specifically, it is a criminalist that does all of the work and they are certified. It is not an easy topic to do, um, to roll prints, because there's rolling live prints, rolling prints off of a decedent, rolling prints off a decedent that's been in water. Um, there's also, there are all sorts of techniques and ways of rolling a print. And that's just collecting prints from a hand. Then there's also finding a print, which we call a latent print. Latent means hidden, basically. So there's finding the prints and developing them, you know, brushing things with the powder and, 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 the, and the brush and all that stuff. There's so much to just a fingerprint or thumbprint or an earprint or a footprint. We have ridges and, and valleys all over the place. And we have oil all over the place and proteins. And you can get things off of this. And because this is for writers, I'll give you a trick. 
a bloody fingerprint. Do you do you do the blood, or do you develop the print? Blood gives you DNA, and and other you know, do they have STDs and stuff like that? And now with a human genome mapping, God knows what else they can find out from it, depending on how much how big the sample is. Whereas working with a fingerprint gets you into APHIS, and the fingerprint database is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. But so is the DNA database. What do you do? I'll let you decide. So does that mean if someone went to, let's say, LiveScan, like they were a teacher or a notary, mm -hmm. their fingerprints would still be in this database? Absolutely. Okay. I'm in there many times. Right. Many, 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 many times. And so if whoever this person was that was at that step, they would be able to access sort of this big brother of fingerprints? Well, you have to be in law enforcement to, to get into code. Uh, APHIS, sorry, Automated Forensic Indexing, I forget the S. So, but it's 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 run by the uh, from the FBI. So, what if somebody did a DIY fingerprints with Scotch tape? Does that work? Yeah. Have you ever? Okay, so that's oh that oh you god yeah please my kids do it. I go <laughs> here go like this and they're like because that's getting the the I always say when when doing a needing a print run your your hair your fingers through your hair because then you get the protein and the sweat and all that stuff on there and then stick it you get a much better print. It develops better for you, if if you will, and the and the glue acts as a what's the word I'm looking for um, acts as a developer, um, so that the the or the, not the glue but the, uh, the 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 stickiness of the tape would the act as, would act the adhesive that's the word I'm looking for would act as a developer. So if you do this the sticky thing, you're going to find a, a really good print. But getting that dusted and and into a database. Many, 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 many steps. So, what what would a MacGyver of fingerprints <laughs> do? Let what are some some DIY tips if we were going to show that in a script or an actor was going to play that? Besides the Scotch tape, what are some other little homemade things they can do? Super glue fuming. They did it in Beverly Hills Cop Two. For those of you who that remember that, um, where generally you have a tank because you need the fumes. A, a super glue fuming. You have a heating element. Um, I use a coffee mug uh, soup heater, um, and I put stuff into a little metal, what would I call it, a cupcake holder. Uh, try to get aluminum if you can, smart and final. Drop, th pour a few drops in, place your suspect um, uh, evidence close to it, turn on the heater, cover it. It could be a terrarium, it could be, I, I'm just using a plastic box at home. Um, it was a uh, you know 396 at Walmart. It's no big deal. It's about yay big, just so it is a, a chamber, if you will. Turn the heat on and then let the fumes do their thing. It takes five ten minutes, um, unlike in the movies where it takes thirty seconds. But the process will it, the the super glue for whatever reason adheres to the proteins in the fingerprint, and you can do it on a Coca Cola bottle on an. On, on tin cans, any, pretty much anything that's uh, non-porous. I say non-porous because if it has holes in it, then you're going to have gaps in your in your in your prints. So that's one one thing, and that's the biggest one is super glue fuming. I, I do that in my in my workshops. Let's see what else would I have. Footprints. You can you can develop footprints. We have in forensics we have knowns and unknowns. And, then, and we can, can compare those things. We're always looking for patterns. 
That's what we do in forensics. Everything is patterns. Does this pattern match this pattern? Does this fingerprint match this fingerprint that I have on paper? If it does, you've got a match. And you can go, okay, this is John Doe. For, you know, look for him in the rogues gallery, find out where he is, locate him, all, you know, book him down, all that fun stuff. Um, but with the, the footprints, we can look at the wear and tear on the shoes. Are, did they walk on their sole? Did they walk on their arch? That doesn't help you with, your, with, with finding the person, but it sure helps with a victimology or, or with a, a, profi a, a criminal profiling, particularly for novels and things like that. Oh, you know, he had a limp and stuff like that. The bushy-haired man with the limp from The Fugitive. Um, but you can actually compare. You can tell this is Nike, this is Adidas, because they have very distinct treads on the bottom of the shoes. So that's something you can do at home. Just take it. If you want, uh, grab a, uh, an ink blotter and just go t -t 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 on the shoe and put it on a linoleum or even a piece of paper. Um, it's, it's enough to get the idea of how you can play with this. And this is something I would even tell actors that we had mentioned in a previous segment. I would tell actors, play with this stuff. It, this is how you do, how you learn, how you understand things, rather than just going, okay, I read a script and they say do this, do this. This is how you truly understand and take it to heart. So going back to that theoretical, you know, set with the young police officer, actor, they won't be the ones actually collecting the prints. They would secure the crime scene, they would wait, and then they would wait for this criminologist to come? Criminalist. Criminalist, I'm sorry. Criminologist would be somebody who studies crime. <laughs> okay, sorry. So criminalist yes. would come and they would do the dusting and yes. they would, okay, great. They would not, the police officer would not do it themselves. Well, as you set it up as a first responder, yes, their job is to maintain integrity of the scene. The, the ME would take care of the body and the criminalist would take care of the rest of it. Criminalists aren't even allowed to touch the ME and, and get fingerprints. I mean, allowed to touch the body. Um, they have to wait for the ME before they can print, uh, uh, get prints off of the, the of the decedent as well. ME has massive range. They have their own investigative squads too. The uh, the ME's office. If you read uh, Patricia Cornwell novels, um, she talks very much about having a, a team and going out and, and doing stuff like that. Professor Ron, in recent years, there's been these horrific stories about, you know, captives, mm -hmm. people that have been stowed away in someone's home for years. From a screenwriting aspect, what would you have this writer do if well, some type of law enforcement is approaching a situation like that? They've discovered maybe a tip from a neighbor, and it turns out there's been a few people living in the basement. Something to that nature, something really horrific. Yeah. From my, uh, my colleagues in, in, in law enforcement that I understand is, first off, backup. Uh, do not go in by yourself. Do not go in with just you and your partner. Make sure you have, not necessarily SWAT, but depending on how, you know, how hostile the person is, you want to approach the door with, uh, not trepidation, but uh, you want to be careful. You, you don't want to tip them off. You, know, you maybe pretend that you're the dighty diaper man. Well, that's an old one, but um, but you want to you've you got to get them to the door is what I'm trying to get at. Um, you have to get them to answer the door because these are recluse people, um, recluse and reckless. It's not something that you want. Lives are are on the line here, so you have to be very cautious, and you have to be very meticulous in your thinking. 
Um, try to always know the answers before you even ask a question type of thing where you will anticipate, okay, scenarios, that's what cops do. You, you, you'll know if, if it's this scenario, we'll do this. If it's this scenario, we'll do that. If it's this or that. I mean, you'll have as much recon as you can about, you know, anybody know how, where, where are the rooms in the house, where are the escape routes, stuff like that. You have people in the backyard, you have people in the front yard. Typical cop stuff that you see on, on literally cops that show all the time. But you want to do it carefully so that you don't impede on or the possibility or create the possibility of escalated violence. In some of these cases, it seems like there was a woman harboring a husband, boyfriend, who it seemed like everything was fine from the outside. And then you find out that this person was an accomplice by allowing that person to get away with it. So if there was, let's say, the, the sweet doting wife at the door, how would you have the officer approach that? That's I've heard a lot of cases like this. And yeah. I'm just shocked to find out that. Generally, from my understanding, uh, and this is maybe more from the news than from, the, from conversations, is you give them tells. You kind of hint, hint at things and let them respond with their eyes or, or you're reading their body language. To let, to know, because generally with a female, it's not the female that is the perpetrator. It is the, the male unit. Um, but they're still an accomplice because they've been... Well, are they? Are they an accomplice or are they a victim as well? That's the biggest thing that I would interject, particularly as a writer. I would think that they would most likely be a victim that's been beaten down, trodden as well. And not that they're going to show scars on their face. They, they may have burn marks on their arms, but, you know, don't touch the face, as they say. Um, I mean, it's easier if you find a, a beaten up woman to go, okay, domestic violence, let me in now. Um, I'm a cop. If it's something that's a little more covert, a little more, I don't want to say cold, but hidden, um, you have you have to you have to yeah, as with anything you have to you have to tread lightly and, and 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 ask probing questions that might get them out. Maybe say, can you step out on the you know on the porch, please? You know, I, I like or I I like the idea as a writer of you know maybe a traveling book salesman if they even have them anymore. Do they have them anymore? I don't know. But somebody, something that you know, can you would you can you come out and see this? Um, now, actually, I'm going to twist this. I believe it was Ted Bundy would use a little dog and say, "Can you help me find my little dog?" Maybe you can use the the, the same philosophy of, "Can you come out and help me?" You know, do something. Maybe it's find my little dog. Um, but this is law enforcement speaking, um, so that we you understand what's going on and then be able to question them away from the person. Because as soon as she steps away, you're gonna draw out. The person is going to go, what the F? What's going on? Why are you here? What are you doing? And then you can cuff them. <laughs> if you're gonna be that bold. Writer's choice. Professor Ron, from a screenwriting perspective, does the writer gain more authenticity writing about the situation from the criminal's perspective? or law enforcement's perspective? Oh, that's a good one. I'm gonna reach into my favorite book, Thomas Harris, Red Dragon, where he writes a scene, everything's going 
third person, first person, whatever. He's, he's going along for, with it. And then he switches a scene out of nowhere that is written from, you know, and there, she's holding the gun and shooting it. And, and it's completely written from, it's about the character that you've been following, but he switches the point of view. That's a writer's job, is to make us look at things differently. That's one thing I try to do with, with when, I, when I teach forensics, too, is one, one of my favorite scenes is, uh, not a crime movie, is Dead Poet Society, um, where he has everybody stand up on the, on the desk and, and look out and get a, just a completely different view of the classroom. Here, we're in a classroom. So change your point of view. Play with it. What works best for you? You may want to write your entire book from the point of view of the criminal, but you still have to have your resolution and your denouement and all that fun stuff at the end. But that's something that the writer, writer has to choose. And I, would, I wouldn't dictate what to say, but I would, I would just advise, play with point of view. It's uh, very, very, very powerful. So the point of view of a criminal how would that be shown differently? It would just be within the actions, within the mind? I mean, it just seems like both are going to be very methodical. Criminals are very smart. They're usually very intuitive. Mm -hmm. You know, and there's a fine line sometimes between yes. both sides. Yes. Anyway, we won't go into that topic. But, but would they still be very meticulous in their actions, or would they be more sloppy? And that's why some are caught. Oh, sense? my favorite topic. Organized versus disorganized offenders. We have a word for it, or a name, a phrase. Organized would be Ted Bundy. Very easily, just to give you a, a real example. Very bright man. Very bright man. Uh, he actually took his own, not his own life, he, he, took, his, he took his own life, his, his control of his own courtroom. Yeah. He, he, and he, he defended himself. The Right before he sentenced him, the judge looked him straight in the eye and said, Sir, I would love to have you practice in my courtroom. And then something along the lines of, However, you're a sick, disgusting man and you're going to, to die. Um, it was a very powerful moment. Um, very powerful. But, but back, back to, he's an organized defender. Things were very neat. His crime scenes were very clean. There was very little evidence. Many times his crime scene was different than his dump site. The crime scene being where, well, the murder, the murder actually happened would be the crime scene or the scene of the crime. Whereas a dump site would be where you find the body. In Silence of the Lambs, they were finding them in rivers and, th and, and lakes and things like that. Mm -hmm. So that was not the crime scene. He didn't kill them in the river. He killed them elsewhere. And, and as we find out later, he kills them Spoiler alert, he kills them in, the, in his basement and then disposes of the bodies. Interesting, the reason I love that book so much, and it is my favorite book, is, is Red Dragon. Silence of the Lambs is, is good too. But he amalgamates Ted Bundy, um, the Theodore Kaczynski, which is uh, the Unabomber, maybe not him. He, he amalgamates about four or five traits of serial killers, Ed Gain, with the skin, that which Texas Chainsaw Massacre was taken from, um, taken way out of proportion, of course. Zodiac Killer. Zodiac Killer, yeah, which may have been Theodore Kaczynski, actually. So, if you don't know this, this is just just a, a tidbit. 
the manifesto of the Zodiac Killer, the very last segment they could not decipher. But if you put in Theodore Kaczynski, it finished it exactly. Wow, did not know that. Yes, it's, I study weird things. Yeah. <laughs> which, is why, which is why we're here. <laughs> Can you give us an example of a disorganized offender, Professor Ron? Yes, uh, probably several. Uh, Andrew Kananen, who killed, ultimately ended up killing uh, Gianni, Gianni Versace, hard to say. Um, he was actually a spree killer. He was not a serial killer. A, ser a serial killer will kill and have time off in between kills. A few weeks, a month, several months, several years, like Andrew Ridgway, the, uh, the Green River serial killer. Pardon me if I get the name wrong. Those are serial killers. Andrew Kanonen was a spree killer. He had no cooling off period. He went from site to site to site killing people. He was from San Diego and Johnny Versace was in Florida and he killed like 10 people in between. He just kept going and going and going. Now, it may have taken him two or three days to get change locations, but he never stopped. So why was he disorganized? What were some of the things that he left messy that ultimately got <laughs> the him? The crime scenes, mm -hmm. his suicide. I, Everything, everything about him was disorganized. He was maybe a thrill seeker. I mean, I don't know much about him, him himself, but uh, other than what I saw in the news as it happened. Um, switch one, uh, switch to uh, Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker. He was messy. He would go in and murder and cut up and maim. I heard he took out eyeballs put in uh, occult symbols all over the place. Not that he was necessarily into that stuff or not, but you know, they didn't try him for that. They tried him for murder and they and he uh, died in prison um, at 52, I believe. So I just recent. found that out yeah. recently. Yeah. But the, uh, the point being that he was disorganized in that he didn't care where he made his mess, who he made his mess with, cleaning up his mess, crossing his tracks. We knew where he came from, we knew how he got in, we knew how he got out. Access and egress is, is the words we would use. Access getting in, egress getting out. He was just a mess. Who else can I think of? Uh, Kenneth Bianchi and Andrew, uh, I can't remember, the, the Hillside Stranglers, they, they were cousins. Um, they were not, they, again, dump sites. They would kill them and then dump them on the, on the, the sides of the road. I think it was the, the 2 or the 134 or something like that, somewhere here in Southern California. Um, they just dumped them, just dumped their bodies. They didn't care. We found traces of uh, carpet fibers, which is one of the things that led to their downfall, if you will, because we were able to, as we said earlier, match the carpet fibers, two fibers in their trunk and stuff like that, um, ha hair things like that. Trace evidence is what we call it. So um, I consider anybody that leaves anything, not, not anything behind, but preponderance of stuff behind. We have one of the first principles of criminalistics is Locard's theory of transference. What you bring in, you will leave a little of you and you will leave a little, uh, bring a little of what you have back. We will have this carpet fiber on our feet when we walk out. It will have stuff from our shoes and, and our skin cells that have shed, hair follicles. We will be in this room. Not necessarily forever, hopefully they clean eventually. 
Just kidding. But there's the it's it's it, Locard's theory is the the founding principle of criminalistics is that there's always a transference. There's always an exchange. So you look for that exchange and then you look for the matches. If someone was to write the perfect crime, what would mess up the forensics person? Nothing. I always say, that's the, the, the number one question I get is, is, what do you do? And I say lie and lie. First you, do, you get a big cast iron tub, you put a body in it, and you pour lie over it until it's dissolved. Bodies will dissolve, bone and all. And then if somebody says, have you seen Fred? You go, no, haven't. You lie. So lie and lie. However, when the criminalists get there and they examine the pipes and they go, why is there so much lie in the pipes? They're going to get on to you. There's no perfect crime. No perfect crime. We will find a way. It may take time, but we will find a way. And as writers, we will find it in interesting ways. Is it easier to write a script from a disorganized criminal's point of view versus an organized? Depends on the way you think in your, in your audience. I personally think it would be more fun to write a disorganized because I like evidence and red herrings. And you can do anything with disorganized. Oh, I found this, like I said earlier, a bloody fingerprint. What do you do with that? You know, you, you can play with that stuff, but red herrings are going, well, it could be this, it could be that. And you get more of that, which makes, I think, a better read. This is for novels, of course. It makes a better read if you've got something disorganized because you can go anywhere with it and you don't know where you're going with it. Organized, pretty linear, pretty linear. So it depends on what you're shooting for. Professor Juan, what would a forensic photographer do upon entering a crime scene? Document everything. Um, this is one of my favorite topics. First off, and I'm gonna have to look at you for this. When you have a camera, you see on TV, they hold it straight ahead. We don't do that in forensics. We hold the light off to the side so it bounces this way. Angle of incidence equals angle of reflection. I'll get out of your face now. Um, that's one of the things that gets me. I understand it's, it's you know, if they, a flash bulb lights off, it's going to bounce. Holding something sideways is not pointing towards the camera. I, I get that. But in real forensics, we, we bounce sideways. Otherwise, the light will just bounce straight back. Angle of incidence equals angle of re reflection, really, but, but refraction. Um, Something else that I would, I would say about forensic photographers that I was trained as is shoot everything twice. Three times if you can. And now with digital, you can. If you were originally, if you remember cam you know, cameras carrying you know, 35 pictures, if you're going to film 10, 10 uh, rolls, then shoot 15. You only get one chance. You only have so many, so, so a limited amount of time to capture everything. And a good example, the OJ trial. There was a image that the cameraman captured or the photographer captured in the bathroom. There were some, at the day of, you know, the actual crime or the crime scene analysis, there were boxes of Swiss army knives that were like six inches long or something like that. They never saw those boxes nor found those knives. They only have the pictures to go on. So they couldn't move any further. But in the investigation, it came up 
they didn't go anywhere with it in court. I mean, they tried, but they couldn't go anywhere because all they had were, were was the image. Had he found, oh, there's boxes of image stuff, you have to look. You can't just take pictures and go, oh, great, 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 great. What are you shooting? What are you taking images of? So you have to look at your surroundings. You're cataloging the entire thing. Now, I don't mean take a picture and write it down. I, um, we have, what's what I'm looking for, scales that we would put down so that you can know, okay, you know, here's, here's, here's a, a ruler that, so you can know that this gun casing was three inches long as compared to one that's, you know, an inch and a half or something like that. So we have scales and, and you, you put them down, you take your picture, you pick it up, you go somewhere else. Um, let's see, what else would I do as a photographer? D so document everything, document everything, document everything. And you're not touching anything, right? No. Because that's the medical examiner. No, the medical examiner is for the body. The body, okay. The decedent. The sorry. decedent, excuse me, okay. Uh, yes. So, but then this forensic uh, photographer is not touching anything, not moving anything. It's capturing the images as they are at this. Well, it's context. a conundrum, which could come in handy in variety. If you find stuff before the ME gets there, the medical examiner, Take your pictures, document everything. Then go through the house or the crime scene again after the ME has removed the body and take pictures because you may have to lift something up. There may be an inscription or something. There may be blood. There may be a bullet. There may be something hidden. You know, maybe it was an organized offender and they have an MO and they, they're leaving their calling card and you don't find it because you didn't move things. So yes, you do want to move things, but not before the ME moves the body. That's only if there's a body. There's plenty of crimes, you know, uh, assault, not assault, bad, that's humans. Um, burglary, um, breaking and entry, uh, home invasion robberies, uh, all sorts of stuff where there are no people involved. And there's plenty of crime. Breaking into a jewelry store, I remember one in Beverly Hills, I was trying to get down Wilshire. Um, and, you know, they, they just document, my, my friend ended up documenting everything. And they were there all night documenting all the jewelry because if they were missing a piece, the photographs would reveal that. So what are some of the things that a forensic photographer is taking pictures of? Doorknobs, forced entry? Yes. We, we look at uh, um, potential prints. I mean, we talked about uh, fingerprints earlier. They can take pi pictures of the prints too. Um, you don't have to just lift them and, and, um, and, and get rid of them. You can also take pictures of, particularly if you use the fluorescent uh, techniques, you will use lighting. Um, luminol, or, I don't know if you're familiar with luminol, but blood that has been washed away, so you think, can be developed because of the proteins left behind in the, in the say it's in the wall, if there was blood, blood spatter on the wall and people washed it down, peroxide gets blood out very nicely but it leaves the fatty deposits behind. So you may have washed it down, but you can use luminol to redevelop the, the walls. Take pictures of it because luminol will degrade over time and disappear, of course, because it's, it's just, it makes everything luminous. Um, we use various, oh, okay, here's one, here's a good one. We use various colors uh, in UV lights, uh, alternating light systems to develop different pictures and be able to see things. You can see written, handwritten articles on a piece of paper where they had written on a piece of paper above it and the paper's gone now. Using a different light source, 
and with the right colored lens, and you can also see them with, with goggles too, and, and the right light source, they have to be matched, if you will. You know, 100 micrograms and 100 micrograms equals red, whatever. But you can, make, you can see these things. You can photograph all of this stuff. They did that in, oh, I can't remember if it was Red Dragon. Yeah, it was Red Dragon. Again, my favorite movie, sorry. But they have great forensics in that one. Um, when they're examining the toilet paper from the crime scene and he had blocked out, blacked out, I should say, the, the address of, uh, of Will Graham, they took, they got everything squished down and then used alternating light source to make the pen that was underneath the blackout come to the top, if you will, and then take photographs of it. And then they had to put it back and get it back in, his, in, in Hannibal Lecter's cell. Um, so, I mean, that, that's, that's documented. So there's so many things that a good or even a bad forensic uh, photographer can do. But the biggest thing is document everything. But we have tips and techniques to do things. I'll leave you with this one. Painting with light, my favorite technique. You leave your camera aperture open. Generally, you do, do this with two people. You, you, you cover it and you say, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna light it up now. They uncover it. And then you either shoot off your flash or your strobe, or you can take one of those big sun sunlights and literally paint with light. And because you're leaving the aperture open, it's, and we're talking like pitch black stuff, you can get a picture of a house, which I've done. You can, you can actually get a picture of a house by painting with light. It's a fantastic technique. I highly, look, highly recommend that people look into that. Professor Ron, who would come in and determine a decedent's age, their sex, their ethnicity, and their stature? Me. Okay. <laughs> and that title is? Forensic Anthropologist. Okay. That is what I specialized in. I have my master's and my bachelor's in physical anthropology. Um, age, sex, race, and stature. We say race, now we say ethnicity. Um, God, how to break it down. The simplest way to do it is we have algorithms of, we take measurements. That's the easiest way. There's metric and non-metric ways of determining age, sex, race, and stature. I don't want to bore you with all the details of, of this, but a there are a few people that you want to be involved with uh, for a few reasons. Forensic anthropologists will tell you exactly what you asked. A forensic archeologist will help you dig up the remains so that we can get to the lab and the forensic anthropologist can do what we do. I'm a lab monkey. I did my work in, in in, uh, at UC Santa Cruz in, in the labs. Um, that's where I got my, 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 my feet wet, so to speak. Sometimes you'll also hear about forensic entomologists um, because we can tell time of death, which is another story entirely, um, and forensic entomologists will get involved. The three of them work very, very closely together. A medical examiner may have a forensic, or will probably have a forensic examiner, a forensic a, a anthropologist on call, maybe even on their team. Bones, love Kathy Reichs. She's the best forensic anthropologist in the world right now. She wrote and created Bones based off of her books. We don't walk in and have, we're lucky if we have a corner, let alone, you know, touch screens. And, and, and an entire staff and all that stuff. I mean, maybe in Canada, but not, 
not here in the in the states it's not funded that much and to tell you the truth we don't find skeletonized remains that often we do find them we do find them but we it's more we'll find in various stages of decomposition uh, which we will take into consideration as anthropologists we are trained in anatomy and uh, and osteology which is bones but from a screenwriting perspective would this all this determining of the age and yes. ethnicity happen in the coroner's office where, where would this typical scenario take place we can actually do this in the in the uh, very good question we can actually do it anywhere is the is, is the, the the broad answer we can do it in the field we have field um, uh, measurement tape uh, tapes we have uh, osteometric boards we have uh, for stature you know when if you find a, a whole decedent as compared to fragments um, we have uh, you know not yardsticks but you know telescoping tele telescoping um, poles that can get some basic information in the field so we can because when you're trying to identify somebody the first thing you need to know is uh, how tall are they what race are they what or ethnicity are they white are they black are they Asian are they mixed we can tell some of these things by looking at the bones oh. we can tell some of these things by examining remains now one thing that I always want to make clear in my classes, and, and I like to make clear here, is human remains are not what you see on TV. Human remains will start decomposing within a few hours, and within a day or two, unrecognizable as human beings sometimes, other than the, the fact that they're bipedal and there's a, you know, a head on top. You don't see that on TV. They say, oh, this person's been dead six days, and they look, they look like roses. They smell the 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 smell uh, the the sickeningly sweet smell of human putrefaction. Forensic anthropologies, so that's something for writers to to, to take into consideration. Is you know, maybe a a strong reaction. Maybe somebody throws up. Maybe they throw up three or four times. Um, my professor and I always agreed: throw up and then get in there and do it if you have to. There is no myth. Myth, myth buster here. There is no stuff to put under your nose like in, again, Silence of the Lambs. I did a decomposition study with a deer once and I put Vicks on my nose. You can smell everything because Vicks clears your sinuses real good. You think the strong smell would overdo it? No, you, you, smell, you end up smelling more. Um, but that's a tip that a, that a writer could possibly use is you know, trial and error. I walked into, uh, I was a realtor for a while and walked into a house that was on a caravan and all the agents became sick because we were, it was a probate. And so I experienced that. And, and another time, like a coroner sticker was still on the door oh. and they had it listed. Uh, <laughs> things like that. What are some of the little signs that if someone was supposed to enter a property and the body had been removed, but things like that. The, the, corner sticker, would there still be tape, would there be, you know, biohazard on the door, like what are some of the little things? Biohazard, booties all over the place, footprints all over the place. Um, as bodies decompose, they will have purge fluid, which is, I mean, if you get them within a, you know, a day or two, they still 
well, they decompose. They they turn into liquid basically. That liquid can stay in the carpet. It can it can stay on it can it can stay on the counter um, if it's not you know hazmat hasn't come in and cleaned it yet, or even if they had, particularly carpet, it'll go into the padding. So you'd have to replace all the carpet all the carpeting, particularly if you want to sell a house. My parents were real estate agents. I I feel for you. Um, what else can we tell writers? Um, yeah, so, so there's metric and non-metric variations. I wish I could show them to you right now, but non-metric is the fun ones. Uh, we have a rule of thumb. You ever had sciatica run from the back of your, back of your, from, from your lower back, and then there's pain all the way down the, the back of your leg? Not yet, hopefully. Okay, that's called sciatica. <laughs> there's a, it's a sciatic nerve. Mm -hmm. In the human pelvis, there's a sciatic notch, and we have something called a rule of thumb. If your thumb just kind of fits in there, it's a female, uh, sorry, it's a male. And if you can move it around, it's a female. Because the female's pelvic girdle spreads, so the notch becomes wider. It's much more effective when I play with Fred back here in the, in the side. Um, but we call, it the, we call that the rule of thumb, so there's, there's something that a, a writer can play with there. But there are non-metric variations that you can look up. Um, I highly recommend starting at the University of Tennessee Knoxville's website their, for their anthropology. That's where the body farm, well, one of the body farms, but there's, there are many of them, but that's where the body farms was started. Um, but start with their anthropology department and they have links and you can find all sorts of stuff. Professor Ron, what prompted your interest in forensic anthropology? Was it a TV show? Was it witnessing something at a museum? What started it was very simple. I wanted to be an anthropologist because I love bones. It's that simple. I also studied, I also cross-trained in zooarchaeology, which is animal remains, so FAMO. I love bones. My license plate says into bones. <laughs> so I went to school to study bones. When I got there, I met my professor, who I ended up being her research assistant and all that fun stuff. She was a forensic anthropologist number 52 out of, I think there's like 60 something now only of board certified. And she introduced me to the world of forensic anthropology. Okay, got it. another caveat for you. Forensic means of the courts. It just means that we're doing things for the people, by the people, of the people type of thing. I was on the forensic squad in college and that was the speech and debate team. So forensics, everybody goes, are you into forensics? Actually, it, you, what you're really saying is, are you into science? It's the forensic sciences that is actually what we're talking about here. Forensics is just the moniker, but that just means that you're going to court for it. There's forensic nurses that will talk about rape kits. There's forensic um, uh, accountants that will talk about double books and stuff like that, because that's still illegal. It, if anything, if it's illegal, or a criminal, or even a civil act, it could be it could be considered forensics. So I'll get off my high horse on that one. Have there been cases of information remains, blood samples where it's not of human origin and it's not of an animal origin? I don't know. And we don't know what it is. I don't know. I wish I knew though. Because I've done a lot of studies on Bigfoot and cryptids, which are which are uh, Loch Ness monster, chupacabras, things that people scientists haven't seen yet, so it's considered not real. But 
other people will, will swear, no, 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 I, it exists. Um, I would love to find some samples of that, of bones even, I mean, because I, I can look at bones and tell you a lot about them and say, okay, well, this is this type of, or, or maybe it's a marsupial or a mucilid or stuff. But no, I, ha I personally haven't run across anything that's unexplainable yet. But I'm a scientist. I'm not a skeptical scientist. I'm a, I'm a hopeful scientist. What about uh, light orbs? You know, they say decedent sometimes remains at a property <gasps> oh, yeah. in a light orb, and then this is the decedent's essence. Spirit, you know, if we're if we're all energy and matter, and we don't really actually cease, there's parts of us remain. So, w w how do you explain these light orbs? Or maybe that's not part of what you do. But if you were to, s to write it into something, remains that don't things that are still in the atmosphere that you can't explain whether they're human, animal, but they're of some nature. There's there's of some substance there. I don't okay. know. I'm probably not explaining myself. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's a subject that I love, actually. Mm -hmm. um, I love the paranormal and things like that. And I always say, I'm, I'm a scientist, so take this with a grain of salt. If something coalesces out of nowhere and goes and then, and then disappears, it still came from somewhere. It still did something. I will not say that orbs don't exist because I've seen them in film. I'm not saying that they weren't made up, but why not? Why not? I've seen many, 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 many dead bodies. I've only seen a handful of people pass away, mostly family members. Um, I've never experienced that myself, but I had experiences as a child that had to do with lights and colors and things like that that I can't explain. I do have a funny one, though. I finally figured it out, though. I sleep canatonically sometimes. I dream and I incorporate what I see in my dreams, so I think I'm watching ghosts walking around the room. And then when I wake up, I find out that I had been asleep with my eyes open. I just found that out a few years ago, because my wife had, had caught me. <laughs> so there are scientific explanations for everything, as far as I'm concerned. If there is no scientific explanation, we just don't know what the scientific explanation is yet. So in a script, how would someone determine that it's a big question mark? Or is that in science, that's there, there always has to be some follow-up or, or law enforcement. There has to be some result from an action. Maybe I can answer it this way. There's no such thing as a truth. There's only such thing as a fact. And a fact is only a fact until we've unproven it and find something else. That's, I forget, there's a name I'm sure for it after somebody from Galileo's time or something. but. If you, it's, it, it, we, we revolve around the sun. We all say we know that now, but there was years ago where they thought that the sun revolved around us. Things changed, and then they found a new fact. We may find another fact that turns out we revolve around something in the Milky Way, um, and you know the sun is just a, a secondary or tertiary thing. We're getting very off the topic and deep here, but. I like this kind of stuff. So. Just, just wondering, yeah. Come up and in, ask me that. In terms of <laughs> findings that, that you could not determine what species, what, whether it was human, animal, it was, the, the line was too blurred. Oh, I can tell human versus animal. That, that part's you easy. You can't, okay. That part's easy. Um, animals, though, being a zooarchaeologist as well, because I consider myself a, a zooarchaeologist, um, animals are a little harder to, to, to peg. But you, if you've got a good field guide, it's much easier to 
narrow it down to oh, this is a moose or I mean you can go by size too. I mean, I know what what body parts they look like, what the the phalanges look like, which is the the the, the finger bones, um, or or the carpals or the tarsals, which are the leg bones and stuff like that. And they look completely different in 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 different animals, and that's how we identify them. It's the pattern that we look at. So we can still identify things. Professor Ron, how would someone show the tricking of a crime scene, the the coming in with false evidence to confuse investigators? That's an interesting take. There's, it's only evidence until determined that this is not pertinent to the investigation. And one thing that we need to discuss that, that we haven't talked about yet is, as a criminalist, you collect, and, you collect and identify and preserve and all that stuff, but then you pass it on to the detectives. You don't go, let's see, I won't, I won't name names. But there's a certain show where they had police powers and they were doing crime scene investigations and they were collecting evidence and yet they were uh, telling the perps that you're busted because I found this, that, and the other. That's not real life. Criminalists collect. They don't carry guns. Maybe they do in some jurisdictions. I can't swear to that one. But they don't carry guns. They don't carry a badge. Um, well, maybe a badge to get on, on site that says crime scene investigator. But they don't have police powers, is the word I'm getting to. Um, even with the FBI and, and, and sheriffs and all that stuff, the criminalists will take, take and package their goods and pass it on, as I said, to the lab. And then the lab will do its research and probably kick out most of, oh, this is pertinent or germane to our, our test or not, or question mark, therefore preserve it anyway, if that makes sense. So then they will pass that on to the investigator, and that's the one thing that we haven't talked about. We're talking about in forensic science all, a lot here, which is what I do, but it's the police that ultimately do everything. When I say police, I, I, please, I, I mean you know sheriff or CHP or you know I, no derogatory towards anybody, just sure. police policing. Mm -hmm. So the detectives, the police officers, will do the actual investigation and the and and hit the beat and do the the backup information. If you find a fingerprint, they have to find the hand that matches it. They have to do that by going out into the field and interviewing people and talking to people and collecting fingerprints and matching them. Um, but you have to have a warrant to do that. I mean, it, there's a whole milieu of police procedural and there's a great books on that by even the writer's store. There's one that's called police, police procedure or procedural, one of the two. Um, I recommend anybody that wants to do any of this, though, to read a lot, particularly if you're a writer. If you're an actor, as we discussed before, you're going to do what the director and the script tell you. This comes down to writing. Read up as much as you can, um, as best as you can. There's plenty of websites, but of course, like Wikipedia, as we say in education, you can't cite Wikipedia. No offense. You can't cite Wikipedia because it's not peer-reviewed. So you want things that are by CRC Press, Taylor Francis, Elsevier. Those are some of the, 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 uh, the more known um, forensic books publishers. Um, I would look into those. I would look into websites. Zeno's forensics page was fantastic. I don't know if it exists or not anymore, but that one lists everything, schools and, and places to, to learn stuff. Take classes. 
Um, don't be afraid to take a professional class. Go to the California Institute up in Sacramento and, and, and take a fingerprinting class. They have a whole degree program in it. Mm -hmm. Santa Ana College here in, uh, in Los Angeles, or actually Orange County, um, has a, uh, a policing program. Sometimes you can get into uh, post-training, police officer standards training. So even if you can't get into them, maybe you can get their materials. Study. How can someone tell the time of death? What, what type, let's suppose it's a car fire, you know, and, and investigators are coming out to an accident and there's a decedent in the driver's seat. It's been on fire, fire's been extinguished. What would be, how would they estimate the time of death? Okay. That one's, there's some easy questions and then hopefully some good points that I can make out of this one. As I had mentioned earlier, time of death, there's a scale, a timeline of how the body decomposes and, and skeletonizes and mummifies and things like that, which we're not talking about here. Car fire time of death would be called um, perimortem. There's an antemortem period, which is when you're alive or before death perimortem period, which is around the time of death, and we would just say this person, you know, died, you know, perimortem from a car fire. Um, and then, of course, there's antimortem, which is after death. Those come in actually more in play, if I can get off the car fire for a second. Those come more in play with, you know, was this mark on the bone made antimortem, perimortem, or postmortem? Because we can tell, because the bone is green, um, when it's fresh, whereas if it's dry, it's the, the marks will leave different striations, different, different types of marks. I'm an osteologist, I go back and forth. As to the carbacue, one of my favorite words, that has to, that you would know within, you know, within a half an hour. Well, I guess you can actually find somebody that died, you know, you can find the car fire three days later if they were out in the rural woods. That would go into the timeline of death and decomposition that I've mentioned before. So that would play into it, and the charred remains would have to be taken into consideration. I don't know of any algorithms for, for considering that. But we would still go under the, the basic you know, uh, rigor mortis, liver mortis, uh, lividity, trying to think of the, 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 the process, uh, the bloating, um, stuff like that. And we can still tell roughly how long it's been. The longer it's been, and this is good for writing, the longer it's been, the harder it is to tell. Whereas we can say, you know, rigor mortis is set in, so, but rigor mortis also sets out. It sets in, it sets out. It starts 12, 14 hours in. But within a day or two, it, it releases and, and goes out. I may have my numbers a little skew. I apologize. Um, but still, there is a, it starts and then it, it stops. So you can say if, they, if they're in rigor mortis, it's within this time period. And that would still work with a car fire. A car fire that just happened on the side of the 101 freeway, you're going to have a respondent immediately. So you're, you know, you'll probably have eyewitnesses that you know, this happened almost instantaneously. Um, you will not be able to, I don't know if this is part of the question, you will not be able to ascertain how long was the car fire or anything like that. You can tell if they died before the car fire, interesting fact though, if they're searing of the lungs, 
this is at, at autopsy. If there's searing of the lungs, they breathed in the flames. If there's no searing, then they weren't breathing when they died. Oh, so they may have passed away from a heart attack, car caught on fire because it crashed and burned. So, you know, you can tell if they were alive or not when, when they hit the thing. So that's one way of uh, uh, incorporating that.